Hi, this is Robert Hooks, and you are listening to TV Confidential, and keep doing it. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. Then we'll welcome back Laura Nimi later on this hour. Laura Nimi, one of the stars of NBC's This Is Us, the final season of This Is Us is scheduled to start this coming fall television season. We'll ask Laura about that. Laura is also starring in a new stage comedy set in Los Angeles during the 2020 pandemic about two people who are desperate for human contact after months of isolation. That's something we can all identify with. We'll talk about that and more when Laura Nimi joins us later on in this hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. Our second hour will include an encore presentation of a conversation that originally aired in August 2012 with actor, screenwriter, and novelist Lawrence Montaigne. Lawrence Montaigne, the actor known around the world for playing Stan in Amok Time and Decius in Balance of Terror, two of the most famous episodes of Star Trek, the original series. But there's a lot more to Lawrence Montaigne than just those two classic episodes. We'll talk about that and more when we replay our conversation with Lawrence Montaigne in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. As well, in the meantime, and speaking of Star Trek, with the big 55-year anniversary Star Trek convention coming up August 11th in Las Vegas, as well as September 2021, marking the 55th anniversary of Star Trek on television, we thought we'd open up the hour by welcoming back our friend Mark Cushman. Mark Cushman, award-winning screenwriter, director, producer, Star Trek historian, and Gene Roddenberry biographer. Mark recently released the third volume of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, a three-volume history of Star Trek slash biography of Gene Roddenberry that chronicles the 10-year period spanning the cancellation of the original series in 1969 up through the making and release of Star Trek The Motion Picture at the end of 1979. Volume 3, which Mark just released, discusses the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture in detail while chronicling the various ups and downs that Roddenberry encountered with Paramount Pictures in order to get the picture made. These are the voyages Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s volumes 1, 2, and 3 like all of Mark's books available through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. In many respects, I enjoyed volume 3. It is as thorough as all of your work are. It is as detailed and well-researched as all of your books are. And I I particularly like the way when when you get into the day-by-day or almost day-by-day production of Star Trek The Motion Picture, you do a great job of incorporating production memos, inner office correspondence with first-hand accounts such as Walter Koenig's journal. That's, that, was, that, was a, that provided a lot of insight and levity. But I, I will be honest with you, I had a difficult time getting through this volume because I found Gene Roddenberry tiresome to the point of exasperation. I mean, on the one hand, I was happy to see, after so many false starts, over the previous five years, I was happy to see that he was able to see his dream of resurrecting Star Trek finally come to fruition. And I was even happy for him 
that after all the aggravation that Paramount had put him through during that five-year period, he had some degree of leverage over the studio going into the development on the script. Yeah. But then, I wrote this down, every time you start rooting for Roddenberry, the bad gene gets in the way, and his ego started getting in the way, and the empathy that I had that was built up over the first two volumes of Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 70s and the three volumes he did on the original series, that started to wane because he just kept getting in the way. Yeah, no, I understand. Hey, I was experiencing it as well. <clears throat> Doing the research and uh, interviewing people and, and everything else. On one hand, it's fun to find out what was going on and to see the movie getting made finally and and so forth, but it's a difficult journey, uh, as I imagine anyone can imagine, because because you see the movie and you, you remember how long it took to come out, and and as much as I like the movie, uh, there's certainly some problems with it, and the pacing and so forth, and we've all heard about the script wars between Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingston and Paramount uh, and everything else, so... I knew going into it that I was going to be witnessing a lot of this battle and a lot of difficulty, uh, and I had to bring it all forward. Uh, but I didn't realize how much difficulty there was and how much battle there was until I started doing the research and going through all the memos and uh, talking to all the people who were there and so forth. I, I wasn't prepared for <laughs> what they all went through. <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, it's kind of like watching uh, a Netflix series or or a movie that um, is good. I, I, I want to think this is good. I, I believe it's good, but, but it's, it's good all the way through. And you say, well, this is a well-made movie and this is good, but I'm not liking where it's going. I think that would be a fair statement. And I, that's something I can't control because I'm bringing forward the truth of everything that was happening. Yeah, well, it, now that I think of it, you're right. It is... If you think of Roddenberry as the protagonist of your three-part biography, which he is, even though he's a real person, in terms of creating a narrative, uh, he's your protagonist. He's the character. Right. And, and you're right that in a lot of contemporary fiction and certainly a lot of contemporary television fiction, protagonists are not all heroes. They have a lot of – many of them are anti Heroes and and so you sort of have going back to the original series, the enemy within. You've got the good gene and the bad gene fighting to take control over who he is as he's trying to maintain control over his creative baby. And I understand, I understand why he fought as hard as he did to maintain as much control over his vision as as he, as he tried to do, but. And maybe this is because I'm a person of compromise and I know enough about how the industry works that there's a degree that you've got to compromise. He just never seemed to understand that. Yeah. Now, you and I, and you just by the fact that your show is called TV Confidential, you and I grew up to shows that were easier to like. Mm -hmm. uh, I like a lot of these new Netflix series and Prime Video series and so forth. But sometimes you don't like the characters that much or it takes a while for you to start to empathize with them because as they're first presented, you're not sure if you want, want to really like them. 
And so it's more challenging, these new shows. They're all well done, but it's more challenging. And Gene kind of became that character. What I will say in his defense, and you let me know if you got this from reading the book, the bad Gene was certainly drawn out uh, by the people he was fighting. He was fighting to preserve the integrity of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And when you read this book, uh, the third volume, even the second volume, where they start trying to make a movie, and they're bypassing him, they're rejecting his script with a, a standard uh, rejection memo, which isn't even personalized. It's just the one they would send out to anybody. Thank you for sending in your script. It's mm -hmm. not for us. <laughs> and this is a guy who created Star Trek, yeah. you know? It was just it's so insulting. I, I try to imagine what that must have felt like to him. And then they're taking pitches with other writers without even telling him. And then they say, well, here's the script we're going to go with. And they hand him the script that's just a mess, and it's not Star Trek. And you read his memos to those writers, the two guys from England, uh, who didn't really know Star Trek. And he's trying to tell them where the script doesn't work in a very polite way. And I read their script, and I read his memos, and I thought he was being extremely polite because that script was a mess. And, um, and you have Paramount saying, this is the one we want to go with. Well, they finally didn't go with it because they realized it was a mess too. But everything he was being put through, and then they say, we're going to do a series. And he buys 13 scripts and has them written and developed. They build the sets. They got everybody under contract. They're going to do phase two. And then three weeks before they're going to film it, the plug is pulled. And it's like, we're going to take that first episode and make it into a movie instead. Except it was written for TV, so you have to rewrite it. But you don't have to rewrite it because we're going to bring somebody else in to rewrite it. And then he has to deal with this. So everything I just told you is in volume two. Now, volume three, as you know, picks up where they now are going to make a movie from that In Thy Image episode, which was going to be the, the two-hour premiere of the TV series, uh, which was Gene's idea, and he uh, worked on the first draft script with Harold Livingston. Now they're going to make a movie, and they now want to bring in yet another writer who's known for feature films. And then they bring in Robert Weiss, and they all keep changing things, and none of these people know Star Trek. And even the Paramount guy I interviewed, you know, who's in charge of that. I want to talk to you about that, but go on. Yeah, he didn't know Star Trek. And he said, well, you know, Gene was a TV writer. We needed a feature film writer. And it was like, no, what you needed is somebody who knew Star Trek and who knew it better than Gene. Let him work with another writer if you feel that's necessary, but quit pulling it away from him because that's not going to work either. And they never got it. So this long statement I'm making comes to the point that by the time you see the bad gene coming out, volume three, you kind of understand why. It's like the Horda killing the miners. Yeah. You know, they're, they're destroying its eggs, its babies. And you kind of understand where he's coming from. So his memos start to feel a little whiny. They start to, as you said, it starts to rub you wrong. But if you're looking at what he's dealing with, and been dealing with relentlessly now for more than a few years, uh, I think you can at least understand where he's coming from. He certainly could have done it better. He, he became his own worst enemy. Yes, he became his own worst enemy, and in fairness, he, is, he did not deserve to take the fall for the fact that the final print of Star Trek The Motion Picture was not the artistic success that everyone had hoped it yeah. would be. And you kind of touch on that in the epilogue of These Are the Voyages, Volume 3, Mark. But at the same time, I mean, it was a classic case of what happens when you get too many cooks 
in the kitchen. Exactly. But as you say, it is a fascinating history to read and to absorb. If you're a fan of the original Star Trek, if you're a fan of the Star Trek movies, if you're a fan of Gene Roddenberry, you definitely want to get a copy of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 3, covering the making and release of Star Trek, the motion picture between 1978 and uh, the weeks following the release of Star Trek, the motion picture in December 1979. These are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, available through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. You mentioned Tom Perry, the executive at Paramount, who had a direct hand in getting Robert Wise to direct the motion picture. Now, before I ask you how he got Wise involved, this is the boat I had with him. And I realized he was... He, he, is that your dog? That's my dog. He wanted to say hi. Well, no, we, li- we like cameo appearances from our animal friends. But uh, <laughs> and I, you know, for, for a minute, I thought your dog was speaking on behalf of Tom Perry. But uh, uh, I can understand Perry's attitude towards the original series because Perry, by his own admission, did not watch television in the 1960s. And Perry was a movie executive at a time when there was still this great divide between the movie world and the TV world, which saw TV as a less than. And on the one hand, to get an Academy Award-winning director such as Robert Wise to direct the Star Trek motion picture, that's a nice feather in his cap, and it's a nice part of the story. But there are times I wanted to throttle him as a reader because it's like, okay, again, you don't understand what made Star Trek work, regardless of whether it was a TV show or not. Yeah. Now, if I was in charge of that production, I would consider it my job to sit down and watch the episodes. Yeah. You know, and really immerse myself in it and and find out what Star Trek is and so forth. And not be hiring a writer to come in who doesn't know Star Trek just because he's got a buzz, because he just wrote a movie script that Hollywood's buzzing about him. So let's bring him in to rewrite Roddenberry's script. And that didn't work out. And then let's bring in Robert Weiss, who didn't know hardly anything about Star Trek either, and uh, and didn't sit down and watch very many episodes. So, you know, if I was that executive, I would have said, look, we're making a Star Trek movie. The fans have been waiting for this for seven years, eight years, nine years by the time it comes out. Uh, I need to really get to know this property and make the right decisions. And and yet Tom's, uh, who was very generous to give me an interview, but yeah. I'm, I'm just going to be honest, Tom's attitude seemed to be representative of everybody at Paramount yeah. in the motion picture branch, yeah. that they knew it was a commodity and they could make money from it, but they didn't respect it because it came from TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, an imperfect hero, so to speak, because he's a hero insofar as he got one of the principal players wise involved in the project. But yeah. again, as I said, a little, there, there are moments I just wanted to throttle him. Well, and then you find out, I mean, Weiss redid all the sets. They built them all for the TV series they were going to make. He rebuilt them all. Well, they're too colorful. I, I don't want it to look like the, the TV show. I wanted everything to be muted, everything to be gray. The bridge was built the same way it was built for the TV show, in eight wedges that could be pulled out so you could do different camera positions and so forth. 
Weiss decided he was going to keep all those sections connected so that uh, the cast was literally in this circular room and, and couldn't get out of it, couldn't see out of it, because he felt, well, they, you know, the Enterprise has been grabbed by V'ger, so I want them to feel claustrophobic. So I'm going to make them feel claustrophobic by not pulling the bridge apart. Well, that affected the camera angles, that affected the lighting, that affected the sound quality, uh, and you can hear it and see it when you watch the movie. And what Weiss didn't understand is he had a brilliant cast that knew how to play their parts and didn't need to be put in a, a box in order to do it. So I think he was the wrong choice. I interviewed Bob Weiss, too, and I respect him greatly. But um, my interview with him, obviously, was for many years ago mm -hmm. because he, he, he passed away. But uh, I don't think he was the right choice. But the way studios put things together, and Tom Perry and everybody he was working with at Paramount, is, well, let's bring in an academy, a, a writer who's got a buzz. Let's bring in an Academy Award producer, uh, director. Uh, let's bring in these elements because that'll make it a hit. Rather than just saying, we're doing Star Trek and we got the guy here that created it and knows Star Trek more than anybody, let's just let him do it. And if they had let Gene do it, it probably would have been a better movie. Now, I do want to say, I, I like that movie. And I like it a lot. But when I first saw it in 1979, I felt it was slowly paced. Mm -hmm. I, I felt a little disappointed in it. But when I was writing this book, I watched it a few more times, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's beautifully done. The music, of course, is beautiful. Uh, I think the acting is, is right on the money, and uh, I think the story is very compelling. It just could have been done better, and I think if Gene had been given the freedom to do what he knew how to do, he could have done it. And you see that in his memos, and you see that in the transcripts from his meetings with Weiss and with Shatner and Nimoy, and you see the hurdle that's in front of him that is almost like a no-win situation. And I felt for him. But at the same time, like you, Ed, I, I kind of wanted to get into a time machine and go back there and say, <laughs> Gene, just get along. Yeah. Get along with these people. Yeah. And some days he was, and some days you'd, you'd see a nice memo, and then the next day he'd be ticked off, and you'd see a, a memo that wasn't so nice. Well, as a character, he was rich with contradictions, and uh, that made him the perfect subject for an epic three-length biography, Volume 3, of which these are the voyages uh, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, covering the making and the release of Star Trek, the motion picture, and all the backstory uh, and everything in between. These are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 3, by our guest Mark Cushman. We'll talk some more with Mark after this quick timeout here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 
888-786-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.